Um, it just came out. You've probably seen John Steingard, the lead singer of the Christian rock band Hawk Nelson. He says he's no longer uh, believes in God. Um, this happened not too long ago. I, I posted a quick clip on it with um, Joshua Harris, too, the, uh, the author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And then um, Utah just recently legalized, uh, essentially legalized polygamy. And uh, then the, everything that's happening with COVID, um, there's so much happening, you know, uh, people's fears of socialism and communism and these sorts of things. And so um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about a few of these things uh, because I think they're important. And, you know, I'm, I'm a vice principal at a Christian high school. Uh, now I also teach apologetics. I've been teaching that for 12 years. Um, and I've, I've taught um, apologetics because I have a concern for students um, who are going out into the world and they have, to, they have to make sense of reality, right? They have to look at what's happening in the world today and they are um, trying to make sense of everything and go, okay, so do I, do I follow the Bible? Uh, do I follow the Lord? Um, uh, is this what is the best um, you know, way to live my life? And so uh, I wanted to talk about John Steingard real quick here because he, um, you know, a lot of people look up to uh, Christians who are in bands and kind of a Christian celebrity here. And um, I read his Instagram post and what I'm starting to notice in these different people that are coming out and saying, you know, I'm an atheist or not too long ago, I debated John Gleason on, um, on Zoom. He's a, he has a YouTube channel called The Godless Engineer. And he gives a little bit of his background. He grew up in a family that believed in God, which uh, most, most atheists today, um, they'll say, I came from a Christian background. And, you know, by and large, this is because America was uh, Christian for the longest time. Um, and so we've been, if, you, if you're following the Pew Research results, that's been decreasing over time. Uh, it was somewhere around 90%, I believe, in the late uh, 1990s. Uh, it decreased to about 85%, then it's decreased uh, recently to about 75% that claim that they uh, believe in Christianity. And um, it's been a concern for people for a long time um, that we're going the way of uh, Britain and uh, how they went from a country that was by far majority Christian, over 90%, to now uh, people maybe 3%, 2%, uh, as far as I understand it. So. Um, I want to answer a couple of his questions, and I, I believe very firmly that fundamentally the issue we're dealing here is that we're dealing with with people that are walking away from Christianity uh, is fundamentally an intellectual one. Uh, and I know not everybody's going to agree with that. Some people would say um, that it, it's other reasons and whatever the case, but I believe fundamentally it's because um, our churches. Uh, have not done a good job, and I'm not knocking pastors. Um, pastors work extremely hard, uh, and they're constantly trying to share God's love and reach out to people. But I think that there has there has been a lack of an intellectual um, case made for Christianity by and large. This is also has to do with the fact that 90% of kids go to public schools where God is not allowed to be in the schools. I believe that is uh, very very much the case. Uh, and I don't know that pastors even have the time to constantly make the intellectual case for the existence of God or for the church or for Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, uh, they, youth groups and Sunday school and 
uh, pastors from the pulpit, they're dealing with a lot of other issues. So they're not always going to be hitting on these uh, intellectual arguments for the existence of God. But the sad fact is, and, and because a lot of people aren't real interested in those arguments, truth be told, um, they're not interested in having that discussion or hearing it, or it's it seems kind of dry and um, boring in a sense, right? So a lot of times when people are coming to church, what they want to hear is, um, what what is God going to do for me? How can I apply this message directly to my life? And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, the Bible is a book that is uh, meant to be applicable to each one of our lives. But at the same time, there are issues that if we don't deal with them, if we are not able to address them and then we and we are not able to equip uh, the the uh, church body with the answers to some of the tough questions that come up, those questions in my opinion, are driving a lot of the kind of statements that John Steingard has made about why he is not a Christian. And so let me just read you, this is off his Instagram post here. It says, why does God seem so pissed off in most of the Old Testament? And then all of a sudden he's a loving father in the New Testament. I've heard this many times, uh, this question. Why does he say not to kill, but then instruct Israel to turn around and kill men and women and children to take the promised land? Another very common question. Why does God let Job suffer horrible things just to win a bet with Satan? Now this one, this question, um, I've seen this uh, posted by atheists and so forth on YouTube. Um, it's a little disingenuous to me. Um, this is not to win a bet with Satan. This is a little bit of a kind of sarcasm uh, uh, sprinkled in here. Why does he tell Abraham to kill his son? And then he's got in, quote, in uh, parentheses, more killing again, and then basically say, just kidding. This was a test. Again, this is an atheist perspective. It's kind of this kind of bitter um, criticism. Uh, just kidding, this was a test. It, it, that's not at all God's attitude in the Bible. It's not just kidding, this was a test. It was a test, but it wasn't this flippant, oh, just kidding kind of a thing. Why does Jesus have to die for our sins? More killing again. Now, this statement by John, and keep in mind, his, um, his father is a pastor, and his father-in-law is a pastor. Um, and for him to ask this question, why does Jesus have to die for our sins, is a little bit astonishing. Uh, because for him to have grown up in a Christian family, to be in as much ministry as he's been in, to have started in the Hawk Nelson band at the age of 20, and to have gone all his life, and he is now asking this question, why does Jesus have to die for our sins? Uh, that's, that's, there's something missing here. This, that's a big deal. Um, and then he adds this, he says, if God can do anything, can't he forgive without someone dying? Now, right there, this is a, a complete apologetics question. Um, because, and I'll answer this because his premise is, is false there. Um, if God can do anything. Um, so, and then the last one, he says, I mean, my parents taught me to forgive people. Nobody dies in that scenario. Um, now, he has a lot more that he writes in his Instagram post. There's a lot more to it. But um, to me, when I read this section, this is what I zeroed in on. Because in my opinion, this is fundamentally why people and young people specifically that we're seeing the rates of which people are leaving Christianity and leaving the church. This is the fundamental issue. It is the intellectual questions that are eating at people over time. And he talks about this. He says it was it was not um, something he decided overnight. It was a slow erosion. 
And this is why it's so important that we understand the Bible well and we apply it well, because uh, if we if we do not, it creates this um, slow decay in a person's faith, and um, that has to stop, right? So, so I'm going to answer these questions very briefly. Um, my my courses, educateforlife.org, all deal with this these kinds of questions. I have 40 classes on there dealing with this. This is what I teach all year long to my 12th grade students. This is what I've taught for 12 years. This was very important to me. Um, when I debated John Gleason, you know, he said, I had questions, they weren't answered, and I walked away from my faith. Uh, I was the opposite. I had questions, my questions were answered, and my faith in God just became stronger. And really, that is the difference, uh, in my opinion. Um, and I can't tell you how many young people I've heard that testimony who have come up to me and said, thank you, Mr. Conover, for teaching this class, because if it weren't for what I learned in this class, um, I don't think I would be a Christian anymore. And so let's answer these questions real quickly. Why does God seem so pissed off in most of the Old Testament, and then all of a sudden he's a loving father in the New Testament? Um, first of all, Jesus, uh, God is a father in the New Testament because Jesus is born. He's never referenced as a father in the Old Testament, right? In the, in the New Testament, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are named in that way. In the Old Testament, God is not called the Father, but in the New Testament, he is, is because Jesus refers to him as his Father, and God refers to Jesus as his Son. Um, that relationship is established through the Incarnation, and that's why he's called the Father. Now, his, his main focus is not why he's called the Father, of course, but it's why does he seem angry in the Old Testament? Now, I do believe this has to do with a little bit of cherry-picking, because the fact of the matter is, is there are many uh, cases in the Old Testament in which God is very loving. And um, I've spent a little bit of time focused on that, simply because uh, this question comes up constantly uh, about why this is the case. So, 1 Nehemiah 9.17 says, You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. In uh, Jonah chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. There, the Bible's clearly making a connection between the wickedness that he sees and his anger. That's why he's angry, because of the pain that is a result of disobedience. Um, then it says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The other issue here that's really relevant is that Jonah wanted the Ninevites to die. But God said, how can I um, abandon these people who don't know their right hand from their left hand, right? They're ignorant of right and wrong. And, and then he also includes the animals, and he says there's many animals as well. Um, I'm not just going to abandon them. And so Jonah wants them to just be abandoned and die. And what does Jonah say specifically to God? I knew you were a God that relents when people repent, and I didn't want that to happen. And that's why I, I, I didn't want to go and speak to the Ninevites. Um, and so Jonah knew God's character there. God's reputation was a God of love and kindness and long-suffering and patience. And so it's a shame to me that uh, John doesn't understand that, that he doesn't recognize that. But what's happened is that uh, the neo-atheists and others have popularized certain scriptures that um, are, are emphasizing God's anger and his judgment and his wrath uh, in exclusion to the ones that emphasize God's love. 
Um, and so it, God has not changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He's the same. He is both loving and just. Um, and so uh, that's the reality. And if we take the time to look at the scriptures, that's what we see. Isaiah 43, 1 through 3. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And the entire Old Testament is God's attempt to reach mankind. And Abraham, the promise made to Abraham was that God would bless all people through Abraham. And that that uh, uh, is brings us back to another question that, that uh, John asked in his Instagram post, which was, why does he allow why does he test abraham by asking him to offer up his son and the reality here is is that and this is preached in numerous sermons all over the place so i i don't understand how john can even ask this question um but the fact of the matter is is that god was going to use abraham in a very very big way but he needed to know that abraham was reliable um and so what happened there was God was actually testing him to see if he would be reliable and trustworthy with the promises that God wanted to make to him. Um, and that's part of what that test was. Abraham is called the father of faith. And we see this throughout the scriptures. Uh, in the New Testament, the Bible says, he who is faithful with little will be faithful with much, right? And so this is the constant test is, are you faithful with what God is giving you? Um, we see this in the parable of the talents. Again, um, that God is asked, giving people something and saying, what are you going to do with what I've given you? And so what God knew, because it was such a huge thing that God was going to do through Abraham, he also gave a test that was very extreme, which was, if I ask you to give to me what is most precious to you, will you... Uh, still do that as difficult as that is going to be. And so uh, that's a huge deal. Um, the other thing that John asks here in, in uh, let's go on to the next question that he asks. Um, he says, uh, why, does, why does he say not to kill, but then instruct Israel to turn around and kill men, women, and children to take the promised land? This is probably the most used argument against God's goodness uh, currently in in uh, in the media and um, by those who are aggressive atheists and so forth. Um, and it, I understand it makes sense. But again, this answer has been uh, this this question has been answered many, many times. And the scriptures are very clear that God was very long suffering towards the Canaanites. Um, it says that he actually waited 400 years before he brought judgment on them. And it had nothing to do with uh, genocide. It had nothing to do with uh, God's, you know, not liking their race or something, because that's often brought up, popularized by Richard Dawkins. It has purely to do with the wickedness that was taking place. And archaeology has discovered that the Canaanites were one of the most wicked people you could possibly imagine. They were practicing uh, things like temple prostitution, child sacrifice, uh, bestiality, all things that were just a horrible, horrible uh, deterioration to their uh, to the people that lived in Canaan. Uh, the pain and suffering involved is unbelievable. You know, we're dealing with COVID here, which is the spread of a, a, a disease that's deadly and, and dangerous. But 
this has been happening for a long time. You have very deadly diseases and diseases are spread by a lack of good uh, taking care of yourselves. The, the Old Testament and the Levitical law is very clear about, uh, uh, quote, social distancing. Quarantining is all over the Old Testament. Quarantining, when you saw um, either even a fungus in your house, you had to quarantine and get away from the house. You had to quarantine if you came in contact with something that was dead. You had to quarantine if you came in co into contact with something that was somebody that was sick. Um, all of these things were in place to bring health and well-being to people. The Canaanites were doing the exact opposite of everything that God was having the Israelites do. And the amazing thing is that any Canaanite at any time could have become a Jew. The, the Jewish Old Testament law permitted anybody from any nation to join Judaism. They just had to agree that they were going to follow Yahweh and they were going to follow the law laid out uh, by God to the Israelites. And so uh, it was their choice. And this was all for their well-being. It was all for them to be blessed. If you look at the Levitical laws, they're absolutely phenomenal. Um, even today, if we took a lot of what, what is applied specifically today and began to take it and uh, fit it for our time, uh, we would see incredible uh, blessings take place. And I don't mean just spiritual blessings. I mean pragmatic blessings because the, the natural byproduct of living according to God's standards is health and well-being. That's what happens. Uh, so when he says, why does he say not to kill, but then instruct Israel to turn around and kill? This was not murder, right? Murder is the taking in of, of an innocent life. He was bringing judgment uh, through Israel to what was going on in Canaan. Um, and there's more to be said about that, but let's go on to his next question. Why does God let Job suffer horrible things just to, quote, win a bet with Satan? You know, this has always intrigued me. The, the book of Job is very, very interesting. Um... But there's something in here that's very significant. Uh, first of all, uh, it looks like, as far as I can tell, Job's passion and love for God was absolutely phenomenal. It, God actually credits him and says, there is no one on earth uh, that honors me like Job does. Now, Satan says to him, well, that's just because he gives you, you give him everything. He doesn't actually love you for who you are. He only loves you because you give him things. Now, this is a mind-blowing story because nobody wants to be loved just for what they give to somebody else. We want to be loved because we want to be loved, right? If we have a friend who who is a fair-weather friend and only loves us because of things are going well in our relationship or because they give things to us, right? No wealthy person wants to be loved for their money. They want to be loved for who they are. And so this was an interesting discussion taking place. And God essentially says, no, Job is better than that. Job loves me not because of what he gives me, but because of who I am. Now, this is interesting because what does it mean to love somebody because of who they are? God's very character and his very nature are goodness. And we see this fleshed out in the New Testament in John chapter 6. There's a scripture um, where, uh, in, it, this is in uh, multiple gospels, but it's in Matthew chapter 8, Luke chapter 9, uh, I believe Luke chapter 14. And what's happening is, is God feeds the 5,000, or Jesus feeds the 5,000, and many people start following him. And there's so many people following him that what Jesus begins to, to test is, are you following me because you love me? 
and you love who I am, or are you following me simply because I gave you what you wanted, right? One is selfish and one is selfless. And interestingly, God is relational. He wants to be loved because of who he is. Now, uh, who is he? Well, he is goodness incarnate. That's what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that God is not just loving, but that he is love. The Bible teaches us that God does not just tell the truth, but that he is truth. Uh, God is the epitome of all things that are good. And so to love him is incredibly important because when you love God, you love what is right. Now, of course, there are people who will dispute this and we can have this discussion, but for the sake of the, the argument here, um, it says that Jesus started throwing out these interesting statements. He said, um, uh, he who wants to save his life must lose it for my sake. He said, uh, he who wants to follow me must pick up his cross. Uh, he said, he who wants to follow me must hate his mother and father. Now, this is interesting because the Bible says that Jesus followed the law and the law in one of the Ten Commandments very specifically is honor your mother and father. So why would God, why would Christ say, he who wants to follow me must hate his mother and father? Well, what he was doing was he was provoking the crowd and those who weren't really interested and pushing them away by them saying, what? I have to pick up my cross? That's crazy. I'm not going to pick up my cross. And they would say, yeah, you gave me free fish uh, and bread, but... Mm, that's not worth picking up a cross, and they would leave. And it says right there in, in John chapter 6, verse 66, from that time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, do you want to leave too? And Simon replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. You know, I've had discussions with friends that are considering atheism or agnosticism, and I said, okay, so what's your alternative? Where are you going to go? Where are you going to get what you're looking for? And the fact of the matter is, is that atheism and agnosticism have nothing to offer. There is no hope there. There is no solution. There's just a running away. It's better to wrestle with the hard questions we have to deal with as Christians than it is to run away um, when those hard times approach. Because God has answers to those hard times. And I feel bad for John um, because these questions to me are not uh, well thought through to make such a major decision. I, I struggle to understand how he can say that this is what caused him to decide he was no longer a Christian. And he says, you know, he says to anybody who says that I need to read the Bible more, he says, I've read the Bible um, and it, it didn't help me. It made things worse. And again, I just... I puzzle over this and I pray for him, but I don't understand how he could have not taken the time to look at the answers to these questions and so easily uh, walked away. Um, I, and maybe he would say it wasn't easily, you know, um, I, I, but I, I just think, you know, for, for John, for Josh Harris, uh, for the different people that are struggling here, um, there are very, very good answers. Um, and the whole issue with Job is the same question that was being asked by Jesus in the New Testament, which is, now that I've told you you've got to pick up your cross, now that I've told you that I need to be first, um, are you going to abandon me? And this plays out in the book of Job too, because his wife says specifically to Job, curse God and die. 
That's what she says, his wife. And Job says, you foolish woman, shall we not accept pain or, or bad things from God as well as good? And he's very angry. I mean, read the book of Job. He's very upset. He's very distraught. He's in incredible pain. He says, I wish I never been born. But um, ultimately, whether we like it or not, this was necessary. And Paul, the Apostle Paul says, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. And, you know, it's funny that Paul would say our light and momentary troubles, because if anybody didn't have light and momentary troubles, it was the Apostle Paul. <laughs> he, he was like uh, shipwrecked. Um, he was beaten, I believe it was, three times with the, the 39 lashes. Uh, he was dragged out of a city, stoned, left for dead, and got up and went back into the city and started preaching. And so, uh, light and momentary troubles. No, that, that's not light and momentary. But the truth is, is that um, eternity in light of, our lives in light of eternity uh, are so small. And so, yes, there is pain. And that's what Jesus said. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And that's what we have to focus on. Um, but I, we don't focus on it with this blind adherence to faith. It's not like I've got to be like, oh, I've got to work myself up into having a faith in God. When I achieve intellectual answers, my faith in God naturally grows. Okay, so it's kind of like, you know, I can't deny, and, and, and John uh, Steingard uses this in his, his Instagram post he, post. he talks about this. He says, nobody debates the existence of the moon. Nobody deba debates the existence of uh, lettuce, he says, which I thought was funny. But you're right, they don't. But if more people knew the evidence for the truth of God, then this would not be a debated issue. And the fact of the matter is, is that most people are not atheists. They are agnostic because a belief in a creator is intuitive. 98% of the world believes in some sort of God. And so uh, it's interesting that, you know, he said, uh, we don't debate the, the uh, belief, uh, we don't debate the existence of the moon. Well, you're right, because it's very obvious. And that's another one of his questions, which he asks in here, which is a great question, which is why doesn't God make himself more obvious? If he's real and if he's there, he said, you know, I'm praying this prayer. God, will you show up? Just show up. I had an atheist one time say to me that she used to be believe in God, but she was on this two-hour drive, and she said, God, I want you to speak to me during this two-hour drive. If you don't, I will conclude that you don't exist. Uh, and so, um, so she ended up becoming an atheist because on that two-hour drive, as she said, God never showed up and told her that he existed. Uh, but uh, this is putting the Lord to the test, right? Uh, God, I'm giving you an ultimatum. So we can't, you can't do that. Now, I'm not saying we don't want to practically know God exists, but I am saying that the evidence for the existence of God is overwhelming. Uh, it's incredibly overwhelming. We don't have all the answers. I do ask that same question sometimes. Hey, God, you know, a, a lot of times us people down here, we don't seem too bright. Could you just make it a little more blatantly obvious that you are... Um, you know, doing something pop, pop up here, right? And sometimes God does do that. He does that in people's lives. Um, I've had some pretty miraculous experiences in my own life. But at the same time, 
in Romans chapter 1, it says that God has given us everything to know that God exists. And I believe that. Uh, I believe overwhelmingly. And even the science today, um, if you listen to some of the interviews that I've had with scientists uh, on my um, radio show, Dr. James Tor talks about this. Uh, the impossibility of evolution based on organic synth uh, 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 synthetic organic chemistry is overwhelming. Uh, the possibility of a of a um, of DNA coming to existence by itself, it's not possible. It's literally a zero percent possibility. Uh, it's not going to happen. And so uh, the possibility of proteins forming by themselves that make up living cells, not going to happen. Uh, and so the probability of the universe popping into existence by itself, no, not going to happen. It's zero percent. If we're being honest, if we're being intellectually honest and scientifically honest, it's not going to happen. Uh, so um, let's go on to his next question here. And this one's the big one. Why does Jesus have to die for our sins? Um, if God can do anything, can't he forgive without someone dying? That question right there to me is, it's, it's telling. I don't want to insult John, and I, I, that's not my intention whatsoever, but it tells me how deep he's actually looked. It doesn't seem to me, because that's a very, very shallow question, if he's really asking that question. Because the question, the answer is very crystal clear. In order for God to be a good God, he must punish sin, right? I first learned this from, you know, Ray Comfort. And it's pretty black and white. It's pretty straightforward. If you have a judge who has a, a murderer in his court who killed somebody, and the murderer says, Judge, I know you're a loving judge, how about, and, and judge, you have the power, you can do this if you wish. How about you let me go and I, you know, we'll just let it go this time. You're a loving judge. Please forgive me. Um, that judge ceases to be good if he lets that murderer walk out of his courtroom. In order for God to be good, and he can't deny himself, the Bible says, it's his nature, he must punish sin. And so, so there's no way around that. You, you, he has to do that. So it says right there, why does Jesus have to die for our sins? Jesus had to die for our sins so that God could continue to be good. A judge that does not administer justice, right? The whole thing right now with, with the outcry of what happened um, uh, to uh, Floyd in the, in the news right now is a cry for justice, a cry for justice. And people are outraged over it. Why? Because that was wrong. And what do they want? They want justice. And God is perfectly just. The desire for justice is, an, is a inherent to human beings. It is given to us by God. And God is good because of his justice. His anger and his outrage towards wickedness and evil people is entirely justified, and if he didn't have that, he would not be a good God. His goodness is demonstrated through his justice. Uh, and at the same time, his amazing loving compassion, because he says mercy triumphs over justice, is that he would then die for our sins, become a man, and die, so that his justice could be satisfied, but at the same time that he could save us. And this is the miracle of God that he would do something like that for us. And I pray for John Steingart that he realizes how critical that is. 
And he asked this question, if God can do anything. The Bible actually says that God can't do anything. In fact, it says he can't lie, right? God also can't die. He can't die. He also can't create a being that has existed for as long as he has. There's a variety of things God cannot do. And one of those things, is the Bible says he cannot deny himself. He cannot forgive somebody without also at the same time applying justice. And so the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. But it wasn't free for God. It wasn't free for Jesus Christ. Um, there's a lot more that could be said about this. I'll probably make a follow-up video to talk a little bit more about it because he also then talks about a vacation he went on with his father-in-law where he finally made the decision that he was going to abandon his belief that the Bible was God's inspired word. And it was a discussion he had with his his pastor-in-law, his, pa his pastor um, father-in-law. And uh, his wife, by the way, it sounds like in his Instagram post, is also now not a Christian also and no longer believes in God. Um, but he says he's open to it. So uh, that's, that's good. So um, I also wanted to touch on Utah legalizing polygamy. Uh, this just happened recently. And um, it says right here, Utah decriminalizes polygamy with near unanimous support by legislators. This is May 20th uh, that this took place. And it says right here, many, many believed it would just be a matter of time. Uh, I was one of those people that believed it would just be a matter of time once same-sex marriage had been legalized. It says right here, uh, same-sex marriage has been legalized across the nation and other alternative relational forms such as polyamory and unmarried cohabitation have become more normalized. Amidst this, Utah Governor Gary Herbert decriminalized polygamy in his state by signing Senate Bill 102 into law on March 28th to very little fanfare. Uh, and this is because this had already come up in their courts uh, once before uh, with um, uh, that that uh, polygamy uh, Mormon polygamy TV show. Um, I'm blanking on it. it. wasn't the there was two of them. There was one called Big Love, and then there was another one. Um, and they actually went to court because at the time Utah was not allowing it. They went to court, and he was busted for polygamy. But um, it ended up they kind of looked the other way. And uh, I know a lot of that's already gone on in Utah. Um, only three representatives voted against the bill, and it passed unanimous, unanimously in the Utah Senate to very little debate or discussion by lawmakers. It seemed to be uncontroversial. The bill does not make polygamy legal. It cannot, as Article 3 of the Utah Constitution affirms, polygamous or plural marriages are forever prohibited. SB 102 goes right up to the line, though. It reduces polygamy among consenting adults from a crime, previously a third-degree felony, to an infraction. The legal punishment for an infraction in Utah is the possibility of paying a fine, no more than $750, and or performing community service. Legal an analysts have equated SB 102's punishment to that of a parking ticket. Now, this is actually something that um, I bring up in my, in my uh, classes with my 12th grade uh, seniors, uh, because... Um, you know, uh, Muslims are polygamous. Mormons, quote, used to be polygamous, um, but technically uh, they're still polygamous. Uh, they're still arranged polygamous marriages, even the main Mormon Utah church, uh, but they're for after they die. So it's pretty interesting. But um, here's the issue with polygamy, and I, I, I want to bring it up. In the, in the Old Testament, you do have polygamists, right? King David was a poly poly uh, polygamist. Um, Jacob was a polygamist. And 
of course, Solomon was a polygamist, right? He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He clearly had issues. Um, so the, the problem with polygamy is this. Um, by the way, in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, it says that a king should not have many wives. It doesn't say exactly how many, but it says he should not have many wives. Uh, and so polygamy, uh, King David had like 10 wives. But in the New Testament, um, the Apostle Paul, when, when giving rules for elders, says that they, the elder should be the husband of but one wife. And so clearly this was an issue in the church. People were having more than one wife. Um, and he goes on to say, uh, each man should have his own wife, right? And each wife her own husband. And it's very specific. It's one to one. Um, so uh, I, obviously you don't go to hell for being a polygamist, um, but uh, this is not God's ideal. And when we go to the scriptures, we're constantly looking for the ideal um, because, and this is hard for some people to understand, we need to be very clear. We are not saved by what we do or what we don't do. The, the Apostle Paul is very clear. We are saved by grace through faith, um, not by works that any man may boast. And he also says very specifically um, that everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Um, everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And what he's referring to here is the fact that what I do or don't do once I know Christ does not save me or send me to hell. I am not saved by what I don't do. I am not uh, saved by what I do do. I, I am saved only very specifically by what Christ did on the cross. I am saved by grace through faith. And the natural byproduct is to love God with all my heart and to do my best to do what's right. Jesus said all the law and the prophets can be summed up in this. Love your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. All uh, over 600 different commandments specifically were meant to bless people, right? Jesus Christ said the law was not made for, uh, man was not made for the law, but the law was made for man that it would be, it would benefit him, uh, benefit people. So when it comes to the issue of polygamy, what's the problem? Um, and the problem is this, and we can see this through social science now. Um, we, numerous studies, social science studies have been done specifically on the impact of the two-parent family. I'm going to read some stats to you that are pretty mind-blowing on single-parent family and then how it relates to the issue of polygamy, if you're not already figuring it out. Um, despite, despite widespread divorce and out-of-wedlock births, single-parent children are currently only 29% of the population. Now, here are the stats on single-parent homes. And this is not a, a knock against single moms. They're doing the best they can. They're trying as hard as they can. But uh, that is a very, very, very difficult environment to raise a child in when you're one parent alone trying to do that. I, I've talked to many parents who are struggling incredibly to try to uh, make things work and keep their kids supervised and so forth. And I pray for them all the time. But here's the facts. Kids are 200% as likely to be juvenile delinquents or teen moms if their father is not in their home. <clears throat> um, number two, 70% of long-term prison inmates grew up without fathers. 70%. 60% of rapists grew up in female-only headed homes. 75% of adolescents charged with murder grew up without fathers. That's three of every four person that's ever been charged with murder grew up without a father. Number five, fatherless children are 300% more likely to fail school, require psychiatric treatment, and commit suicide as adults. Number six, 
Fatherless children are up to 40 times more likely to experience child abuse compared with children growing up in two-parent families. That's 40 times more likely to experience child abuse. These numbers are stunning. And the sad fact that this is not talked about more often and not more widely talked about in the media, in pop culture, is just so uh, horrible to me. The amount of kids that could be helped if we would just understand the significance of a two-parent family is incredible. 70% of those describable as violent came from female-headed homes. And why female-headed homes? What they're saying is, is the father's out of the picture as a deadbeat dad, right? Uh, Number eight, 80% of those motivated by displaced anger came from female-headed homes, single-parent homes. Of the juvenile criminals who are a threat to the public, three-fourths came from broken homes. Number 10, even as far back as 1987, a study found that divorce, regardless of the economic status of the disrupted family, posed the strongest correlation with robbery rates in American cities larger than 100,000 in population. There is nothing that correlates stronger with robbery than the amount of divorce in a town, a city, a state. That's the facts. Um, Let's keep going. Number 11, young men who grew up in homes without fathers are twice as likely to end up in jail as those who come from traditional two-parent families. Number 12, studies have shown that there is a strong correlation with the number of single-parent families and the crime rates in cities with a population over 100,000 regardless of socioeconomics or racial composition of the city. Number 13, a 1993 study showed that the rate of violent crime and burglary in a community is related to the number of single-parent households with children aged 12 to 20. Number 14, delinquency rates are 10 to 15% higher in broken homes than in intact ones. Um, I'm going to go on to number 16 here. Among all possible contributing factors, only divorce rates are consistently associated with suicide and with homicide rates. Okay, so, and the last one. Here's the very last one. A recent study of 25,000 incarcerated juveniles made by the Bureau of Justice Statistics indicates that 72% of them came from broken homes. 25,000 incarcerated juveniles. Since at the time, 74% of the nation's children lived with two parents and only 26% with one parent, that meant that a child growing up in a single-parent home is seven times as likely to be incarcerated. That is 700% more likely. Now, this issue pertains to um, a lot of what we're talking about, the whole race issue that's happening right now. And you'll hear tons of uh, people talk about this. I had... um, uh, former Black Panther on my show uh, who, who talked about this particular issue. Uh, Larry Elder talks about this issue. Um, all the conservative blacks are talking about this issue. That the issues in the black community that are being are, are, that they're dealing with ha- are, have far more to do with fathers, uh, fatherless homes than they do with race. And even Obama talked about this very specifically. The, the correlation with crime and all these problems uh, to not having a father in the home. So how does this relate to Utah and polygamy? Well, quite a while ago, maybe 10, 11 years ago, I had a student come to me and he was asking for the opportunity to do extra credit. 
And he said to me, um, what can I do? I said, well, you can interview somebody from another religion. Well, he ended up having a Mormon friend who had just moved from Utah. And he said, is it okay if I interview this friend? And so he interviews the friend. And during the interview, the, the discussion of polygamy came up. And it turns out this kid's father uh, was a polygamist and he had 11 wives. The, the kid's father had 11 wives and had 33 kids. And the kid in the video says, I can count on one hand the amount of conversations, meaningful conversations I've had with my dad. And so what we see here is that he was disconnected from his father, even though his father was not in a one-parent home, he was in a, you know, 12-parent home. But the fact of the matter was that he did not have a strong relationship with his father. And so what the Bible is advocating against is any relationship that disconnects the father from the child. And this is also the same issue when it comes to the issue of homosexuality. Why is God opposed to same-sex marriage? We, I'm not going to get into it right now. I have shows on this. But the fact of the matter is, is that what same-sex marriage does is it disconnects the child from one of their biological parents. And so all of these are, are nothing compared to the ideal, which is not always possible, but it's always desired, which is that a child has one mom and one dad who they can connect with on a regular basis. And this is the problem with polygamy. And if you get into it, we know that there are numerous problems in polygamous relationships. Um, we'll probably do that for another show. And you know what? Um, we're really out of time now. So uh, thanks for being here. If you were able to tune in, I hope you um, enjoyed it. I'm going to be talking more about um, how COVID is, is impacting education. Um, we are seeing some very interesting developed developments. There are un, kind of unforeseen consequences uh, that are taking place. Um, and uh, surprisingly, there are actually a lot of good things that are potentially going to come out of this um, that changes in education that I think um, we're going to find are a big blessing and a lot of kids are going to be moving in a direction that is going to be a, a huge blessing to them. So anyway, uh, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for uh, tuning in and uh, we'll be back with you again uh, next week. Uh, God bless you and uh, I hope you have a great day. Bye-bye.